T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The COVID-19 pandemic upended the way we work and the way we get to work. Millions of people across the country have ditched their commute to work from home for some or all of the week. That's a challenge for Metra. The commuter rail agency has to find a way to rebuild ridership before federal COVID-19 aid dollars run out in two years. I'm Rob Hart, in for political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. We're talking with Metra Executive Director Jim Derwinski. This interview was conducted using Zoom video conferencing. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Well, let's let's begin by talking about where uh, Metra ridership is now compared to February of 2020, right before everything shut down. Well, right before everything shut down, we were about 280,000 passenger trips a day. Currently, right now, we're at about 51% of that on average of the on a, on the entire week, so about 140, 140 plus thousand passenger trips a day. And take me back to what uh, was going through your mind uh, almost three years ago when COVID-19, the coronavirus, as we were calling it then, uh, went from something that was on the news and in the news and maybe on the periphery to something that you knew would have a profound impact on the railroad. Was this uh, before the uh, stay at home order in March? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, this thing moved so fast. I recall it like it was uh, last week. Um, you know, you're hearing it, like you said, it's on the news, it's out there, it's in discussion. You know, next thing you know, it's on a cruise ship and they were talking about it at airlines and we're seeing things overseas. It was the week, I want to think, of March 5th, where we watched ridership tumble, um, you know, from a basically whatever 100% was at that time all the way down to 15%. And then the following week, it was almost like, hey, everybody that hadn't figured out how to work from home, they came in the office that Monday, grabbed their stuff, and then they they moved out. Um, our, our low ridership day was April 9th of 2020, but I, I recall it vividly being under, underscored more than anything is the fact that our riders have now a new ability to perform their, their jobs um, not by coming down a central business district. I was a, I still am a, a Metro Union Pacific Northwest line passenger. And my last day on the train in 2020 was March 12th. And uh, we at the radio station had shifted to a work from home model about two weeks after that. And I remember picking up a, uh, a takeout meal from a restaurant uh, not too far from the train station in Park Ridge. 
and the the original train schedule was still in effect and watching a express train go through town that's normally crowded at uh, 515 520 on a weekday evening and seeing just a, a handful of people in addition to the crew it was a very surreal sight yeah and, and with that surreal sight came the realization that you know the expense is still here um so metro very quickly mobilized um, what we called our critical mass center, where we kind of identified where is our weakest area. If something were to go wrong, if we were to get, quote, infected with COVID here, where would we be most vulnerable? Crew calling, dispatching became two of the top priorities because it's such a isolated, limited amount of workforce that handles that. But then taking a look at the general expense, we made that big decision that not a lot of others did to uh, really reduce down to um, a reduced schedule. Obviously still provide service, but get down into almost a Saturday type schedule. And it wasn't exactly Saturday schedule. We had people clearly working on this. And the reason was we'd had no certainty of where the uh, revenues were gonna come from. Um, so being fiscally responsible, you know, we reduced those trains pretty quick into this, into this uh, sequence. And then as vaccines came in, there was clearly a pickup in ridership in 2021 as offices reopened downtown as uh, people started returning to the central business district what was the recovery like in 2021 and how has the pace of ridership uh recovery met or exceeded 2021 and 2022 so i'd even go back if i could for a second to 2020 i mean as we were in october of 2020 you know, we were wrestling with an upcoming election, still uncertainty on the financial aspect of it, but we were seeing great increases. We had just uh, finished the Commute with Confidence campaign, which really emphasized all our cleaning efforts. And then um, as uh, December hit, uh, we started seeing some numbers that started going in the reverse direction again with regard to the rise of COVID. Um, so we get into the beginning of 2021 and the vaccines come out. And of course, they're trickling out the beginning. I think April-ish was the time we started seeing a little bit more um, people jumping back on the train. And we would see these, I call them kind of um, staggered events where it, from the Central Business District, we might hear a rumor like, oh yeah, right after June 1st, we're going to have everybody come back or right after uh, Labor Day or 4th of July. And um, that's been a constant drumbeat of conversation with the Central Business District. And in all truthfulness, that hasn't really happened. We haven't really seen these dramatic rises in ridership. Um, we've been seeing those since 2022 began, a pretty set, steady, solid growth since about February. Um, as you recall, last December, early into January, this region surged in COVID and our riders um, being the type of riders that were able to work from home, they pulled back real quickly uh, for all the reasons they should. And then slowly in February, I think we started this year around 25% ridership and, you know, to grow to 50% by mid-year, it actually exceeds some of our original projections, um, but um, very steady and slow ridership growth this entire year. And it's no longer the Monday through Friday nine to five worker who relies on Metra, uh, just based on my own observations from taking the train. It seems that you have a decent sized uh, crowd on Monday and then 2019 style passenger loads Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Friday is clearly the day everybody works from home. Yeah, so if you take the system as an aggregate, I would say we have 15% or so less riders on a Monday compared to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. 
and we have 30% at least less on Fridays. Some of those numbers vary by line. And one of the reasons they vary by line is the way we've redeployed schedules. On several of our lines, specifically the two lines on the south side, Metro Electric and Rock Island, which are part of the Fair Transit South Cook pilot program, they have almost pre-COVID type schedules. The other two lines that have very robust schedules right now are the BNSF and UP North. On the lines where you have that much more robust schedule, we've seen a more shift to this widening of the rush hour and more use of the discretionary period on the lines where we haven't been able yet to put back the full schedules or we still have limited schedules heritage quarter for an example has limited schedules we're certainly not seeing the 2019 type uh numbers we're still seeing those sometimes as down as low as 30. and then taking a look at your budget for uh 2023 it does include a table on ridership and projected ridership going forward and uh, 2019, you had 74 million rides across the entire system. That goes down to 19 in 2020, 14 million in 21, with uh, recovery in 2022. 35 million projected next year, 52 million projected in 2025. Uh, given the fact that, uh, you know, looking three years down the line, uh, you won't recover to the 2019 uh, level of, of you know, passenger loads. Uh, is that even possible, uh, knowing how people's commuting patterns and working patterns have changed? You know, so I, I say this all the time, and I'll start with this, that no matter what anybody said about COVID, ridership, and what's going to happen, economy, city, um, world, we've all been wrong. And we're going to be wrong again, no matter what we say today. But what I will tell you is, we've clearly identified that the ridership patterns have totally changed. Is Friday going to be kind of like the new beginning of a three-day weekend? I would say yes. Um, you, you talk to people down here in the city um, when they're out and about, and you're, you're sensing Thursday is the new Friday down here. So that's very, very evident. But the other thing that's pretty interesting that we're seeing, at least in the commuter world, is that some people are still riding the trains two to three times a week. We have good data coming in from our, our Venture app, which kind of starts really looking at what are those ridership patterns? You know, people might not want to come down for the entire day, but they are coming down for business meetings, maybe a lunch, and then they're heading back at a different time of the day. So when we talk about those numbers, those 70, you know, 4 million trips, the, the idea of getting back to those same 74 million trips obviously is not going to happen. But what we're seeing, what we're really seeing is that 25% of our riders right now, at least by survey data, are new. And how are they riding the system? Well, they're probably riding the system like, like others, two to three days a week. Um, there are five-day-a-week riders. Um, we definitely have more discretionary riders than ever before. So it, the hard part is figure out what that 52 million rides looks like and what that actually starts measuring. It's certainly not going to be like the 2019 pattern. Was there a particular event in 2022 that uh, brought people back to trains in greater numbers? Was it $5 gallon gas in uh, June and July, or was it the introduction of the $100 flat rate monthly ticket? Uh, you can ride it anywhere on the system, regardless of zone, regardless of where you begin and where you end. So we never really saw a dramatic lift. What we did see was a transition of ticket type. So the $5 one way or the $10 round trip all day pass, um, that correlates to about 10 trips per month. So the $100 pass was really built around some mathematics that said, hey, you're coming down two days this week, three days next week, two days the following week, three days the following week. So 10 times a month. Um, you know, and add in there if you want to use it for discretionary use on the weekends or, or other days. 
So that's where the $100 pass came from. What we saw was a shift of people purchasing a lot of the $10 passes and just shifting to the monthly pass. Um, and now what we're starting to see a little bit more and we're pushing it from an advertising perspective is people starting to take a little bit more advantage of that regional connect pass, that CT and pace offer now for an extra $30 on top of that $100 monthly pass where you can get basically unlimited access to the entire transit network. We're starting to see a little bit of that happening. What is the future of the Super Saver monthly? I mean, you say it, it was popular. It did uh, get some people to upgrade, but uh, in, in the budget uh, for next year and beyond, uh, there are two scenarios, one in which you keep it and one in which you go back to uh, the original fare structure. Uh, what would tip your decision making in one direction or the other? Well, there's a couple of things that obviously will influence that. One, is, of course, is the information that we can provide to our board and, and their desire to um, navigate through 2023 with an eye on 2024 and 2025 as areas where we need to stabilize the uh, the economics of this. The other thing, of course, is um, we're in the process right now where the public is reviewing it. And so we're going to certainly listen to the public and, and the public comment period during uh, uh, November 2nd and 3rd hearings and kind of try to understand um, what the riders are looking for. I mean, it's, 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 it's easy to say, you know, hey, if something's cheaper than it used to be, we really like it. The real question is for our board and for operationally staff has to make recommendations that start building us a bridge toward whatever that stabilization looks like in the out years. Because the clock is ticking. Uh, there's two more years that you could probably use the uh, federal COVID relief money and other uh, federal economic aid measures, uh, emergency economic aid measures to uh, balance any budget deficits you have. But then by 2025, it seems like uh, you're, you're back to square one and you got to figure out what you're going to do. Either hopefully you get more riders back or you got to find some way to make up that uh, budget gap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a combination of both. I think, you know, ultimately this is a regional um, issue, right? Metro is not going to be the only one with a budget gap in those out years. So working with the Regional Transportation Authority, we probably have the biggest obligation to go ahead and demonstrate, you know, what we've done to be innovative, what we've done to be creative and what, what our new ridership pattern looks like. We are a service to the region. We're a service to six counties and the service won't go away. I mean, it can't go away. The roads are too crowded. There's too big of an investment in the, into the metro, into the commuter service that we have here. So the real goal in the next two years is to demonstrate and, and discuss with not only our board, but the RTA board, you know, the value. And to your point, what does that cost in the future? So where does that come from? Does it come from a balanced model where somehow we're over 74 million trips and the price point equals out to the area filling in the, the revenue gap that's needed beyond the taxes? Um, one positive note is people in the region have been buying a lot more stuff online. And because of that, our tax numbers for the region, for the RTA, have been coming in stronger than historic. And so I think there's there's still a couple balance points that we're all going to have to look at. And that's the good news is we've got a couple of years to continue to try innovative things and then see, see what's working and eventually put the mathematics behind it and see what has to happen to balance. And on the subject of innovation, there, there have been some uh, interesting concepts when it comes to scheduling. You mentioned uh, a more robust, uh, maybe uh, midday off-peak schedule, uh, also uh, 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 greater offerings at night and on the weekends. Uh, are those particular areas of growth that uh, Metro has identified you talked before about somebody going downtown for a business business meeting or or for lunch. 
another possibility, I can just say this as somebody who used to drive around a lot on Saturdays and Sundays, is that the expressways on the weekends are as crowded on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon as they would be on a Monday morning or a Monday afternoon. It's, it's very much weekday style traffic. And is that the next play to get people off the roads on the weekend, just as you did for decades and getting people off the roads during the weekday? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the strategy. You know, once again, showing our innovativeness and trying to find those new riders, not necessarily the same patterns as before. I'm looking um, at this last weekend ridership and just just some of the numbers to throw at you, what we're seeing with our ridership on the weekends, which which, uh, you know, goes kind of even against the fact that you're on the roads and everything's so crowded. Metro Electric Saturday, 107 percent. Um, UP North Sunday, 105%. The system average was 80% of pre-COVID numbers for the weekend. So we're seeing, you know, obviously on the days that you had the marathon or you've got, you know, sports events and air show and Lollapalooza, you see those spikes. But we're seeing more a consistent lift on the weekends, which means the system's safe. People are wanting to use it. They're just not coming downtown, most likely, for work on the weekend. You're listening to WBBM's At Issue program. I'm Rob Hart, and for Craig Delamore, and we're talking with Metro Executive Director Jim Derwinski. Jim, how has work from home changed Metro ridership on bad weather days? You know, in the old days, if a if a snowstorm hit Chicago in the morning or the afternoon, people took the train. Now they just work from home. How does that impact ridership? So that certainly impacts Matt's ridership in a in a, obviously a negative way. We looked at that this last February and March. We used to call those Metro days. You know, big snowstorm means more people got on the train. We were here for you. We can get through that snow in a, in a much uh, more robust way than than the roadways. So I think what we have to really you know assess over the next couple of years is when those snowstorms occur, those weather events occur, and people have the ability to work from home. Do we adjust our operational uh, profile? Do we not run all those trains knowing the fact that now riders aren't going to be there? Do we help control some of the expense of the equation and look at that? Um, and that, and then this this last spring, clearly we saw that when we had a few snowstorms and our ridership dipped on those days. This week, uh, you were on hand for the groundbreaking of the flyover junction uh, at 75th Street, uh, another railroad tie-up, uh, a crossing that had probably been in place for decades, if not a century. It'll be replaced by a bridge, and which will result in uh, fewer delays for uh, Metro Southwest service. How is the CREATE program, which is untying some of these uh, railroad bottlenecks in Chicago, how is this benefiting Metro, and what are some ways uh, it could result in growth in service going forward? Well, the one you just brought up is probably one of the easiest ones to talk about at this time. The CREATE program has 70 identified projects on it from its inception, 35 of which are either complete or in full design. And Metro sometimes benefits very directly. This one we're going to benefit very directly in the Southwest service. When the entire 75th Street SIP project's done, the bridge that's going to go rail to rail over us, um, the untangling of Forest Hill, and the junction that's there and building a, a another bridge that's going to connect the Southwest service over to the rock line. When that's all said and done, the Southwest service trains are not only going to have less delay, they're going to have their own lane that they stay in. They're going to have less travel time. We also then can start building a more robust schedule. Today, the limitations on the schedule are literally those, those areas where we have to conflict with freight. The, the opposite example that is Metro electric. We have no freight uh, uh, congestion. 
We have almost no roadway congestion on Metro Electric. And over there, you have the most robust schedule that you could possibly run. What is the is Metro's relationship with uh, with with some of the freight railroads? I mean, obviously, there are four lines. There's still the so-called purchase of service lines, the ones where uh, Metro operates uh, the trains under contract uh, for the BNSF or the Union Pacific lines or the the Union Pacific employees uh, operate the trains for Metro, a relationship that's gone back to the 1970s. And then there are some lines where you own the tracks, but they do the dispatching. And then there are some lines where you own the tracks and have the crews outright. We kind of learned a little bit about uh, jurisdictional issues when there was the uh, threat of a railroad strike, which at this point uh, still persists. It may not be as front of mind as it was before. But how do those relationships impact Metra's ability to uh, deliver service, the ones in which the Metra or the RTA actually owns the facility? others in which they have a contract relationship and the ones in which uh, maybe they're dispatching the lines or somebody else is dispatching them for you, in some cases, thousands of miles away. Yeah, you couldn't ask for a more complicated setup here in Chicago. We certainly didn't invent this. The ones where we own, operate, dispatch, maintain, there are employees. Obviously, those are the easiest to work with. They have the most flexibility within schedules. You move into the lines where we're not dispatching, we don't own. Basically, it's a trackage agreement on, like, say, the CN lines for the North Central Service, the Heritage Corridor, part of the Southwest Service. Um, those lines there, um, the way it kind of works is it's minimal. Uh, we don't have the most robust schedules out there. Um, our partners, BNSF and UP, really are good partners. They're the old legacy systems that were in place before the RTA was formed, before public dollars were ever put toward uh, commuter operations here in Chicago. Um, both of them do a very good job of making sure the Metro trains get the priorities they need so that they can maintain schedules. Ultimately though, as the owner and, and primary operator of freight, once in a while there is some conflict and then we work through that. The most complicated lines we have are Milwaukee North and Milwaukee West line where Metro is the owner, the taxpayers are the owner, we're the maintainer, um, our crews operate on there with Metro trains, but yes, they're dispatched by the Canadian Pacific, you know, hundreds of miles away, and so the actual control of movement, the actual control of schedules is not in Metro's hands, that's the most difficult relationship, and so the best thing I can say to you is that we have to have constant communication with those six big class one railroads we interact with on a normal basis, even at junctions and bigger conversations with the ones that are providing the PSA service with us because those are their employees wearing the Metro uniforms on those Metro trains. And before we go, uh, I am a bit of a train enthusiast myself and I do want to do a little bit of uh, uh, geeking out over some new equipment that's arriving uh, on the Metro property. You have new uh, coaches that'll be cycled into the system soon, some new locomotives will be uh, entering service before too long. What does that mean for Metra in terms of uh, lowering costs as, you know, for maintaining and servicing equipment? Yeah, so the, the new coaches right now are tentatively scheduled and they're on target to be delivered uh, at the end of 24. Those will have an increased um, customer experience. It'll be just much better, much more modern, uh, cleaner. Um, they're going to have two sets of loading doors. So the on and off dwell times are going to go down. Um, and when things are new, they, they are maintained much easier. They're being designed and built 
by Alstom, but we're partnering with them using our mechanics and our operators to make basically design the car to make it more user-friendly for maintenance. So that, that all drives down operating costs. The locomotives that we're purchasing right now that are coming on property are former freight locomotives called SD70s. We've actually now got them um, on property. Uh, they're in test right now. AC traction, that brings reliability up and it brings maintenance down. And then we're looking at the fuel save that these things will have operating in our type of uh, service unit. They actually run very much cleaner than the uh, existing locomotives that they're replacing. They're not tier four compliant, they're tier three, but they should, um, again, reduce the operating costs and of course the carbon footprint's another thing. And innovatively, we are actually, we've ex executed a contract to convert three of our old diesel locomotives to 100% battery. Um, that contract did get with Progress Rail. We've been starting the preliminary discussions about getting the locomotives down to them and eventually loading them things up with batteries and coming back in service as battery-powered locomotives that run on AC traction. Yeah, just doing some of the math, uh, some of the locomotives that uh, are on the property for Metra are, oddly enough, are in some cases are older than the equipment that the RTA inherited in the mid seventies. I mean, the, you know, the backbone of the Metro fleet for the longest time was the, the tried and true F 40 pH, which is uh, 45 years old. Uh, the, the upgraded version is 30. The uh, MP 36, which came in on the property is that's now 20 years old. Uh, so some of these, <laughs> some of the locomotives and some of the coaches uh, managed, even the stuff that was considered new uh, managed to get old in a hurry. What happened there? Well, uh, time marches on and funding doesn't keep up. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we've been very good. Our, our workforce here, the men and women that maintain this equipment do a phenomenal job. Our rebuild programs here really take take it to the extreme. No one else in the country, like you said, is running equipment as old as we are. So we're getting the most bang for buck out of this. But we're slowly finally getting some funding. And some of that funding, like I said, is going in innovative ways, such as bringing in former freight locomotives and converting them. Uh, walking down this path of zero emissions right now, we're not jumping in wholeheartedly. And, and once again, it's it's really, it's a funding thing, but it's the men and women here and the innovative programs that we put in place that really make this legacy system continue to shine. And I do want to ask you about the uh, the, the trails and brews uh, service that was offered on the Heritage Corridor, allowing you to uh, take your bike on the train and then you can ride your bike up and down the I&M Canal in the southwest suburbs and check out craft breweries along the way. What kind of response did you get to that? And could that concept be expanded to other lines in 23? The response was pretty good. Um, I think, you know, if you know anybody in the biking world, they, they, they love that kind of idea of uh, take my bike somewhere else and ride it. Um, the challenge in that particular one is really it's the heritage corridor and the limited amount of service. So one of the things that we are looking at and thinking about is how can we kind of, let's just say, move that model around to the other lines and maybe, you know, in the month of this, we'll run it up this line in the month of this, run it up that line. The bike enthusiasts tell us that, you know, some of the cool things you can do are like almost go from say an Aurora up to an Elgin or Elgin up to McHenry on bike trails, and then kind of use the train to go out one way, ride your bike and use a different train to come the other way. So we've opened up and allowed on all trains, all times of the day, more uh, bikes are allowed on the train. It's not, it, you know, we used to ban it during rush hour. So at least in some respects, we're trying to really answer that particular uh, community. But uh, 
the people that wrote it, they really liked it. Uh, the people that uh, worked on the on the project really liked it. And we've actually still been building, taking some of those old 1960s and 70s cars and converting them into uh, more robust bike cars that can hold up to now 16 bikes. Jim Drewinski, Executive Director of Metra. Looks like our time is up. Thank you for joining us today. And I will give you the final word. Well, I appreciate it, Rob, uh, the opportunity to talk here today. I think the final word is that ultimately the riders are going to figure out that coming downtown is a much better way to go ahead and conduct your business, your pleasure, and, and Metro's here to serve. We're seeing the 25% uh, new ridership out there. And so we're you know doing things with the $100 pass and the super savers. Um, just through this uh, radio program, just people give us a try. Uh, you're going to have a great time. You're going to get off those roads. The number one people ride uh, Metro right now, it's uh, to avoid stress. So if you're thinking about that in your car, time to jump on the train. Thank you, Metro Executive Director Jim Derwinski, for joining us today. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at WBBMNewsRadio.com and find the link on the homepage. You can also find our podcasts on the Odyssey app. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, in for political editor Craig Delamore, I'm Rob Hart. News Radio 105.9 WBBM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 